welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Libraries Turn the Page podcast. I am Jessica and I am here with. Hi, uh, my name is Russell James and my new release from Flame Tree Press is called Demon Dagger. So, this is one of those books that, you know, I was reading the blurb for it and I was like, oh, yeah, this sounds, this sounds really, really cool. Uh, could you tell um, uh, the listeners just a bit about what this book is about? Uh, Demon Dagger is the story of Drew Price who has a gift that when someone is possessed by a demon, he can see the demon within that person where the rest of us just see a normal person and we don't know. Uh, That gift or curse, depending on how you look at it, leads him to become a demon hunter. And one of those demons that was sent back to hell returns with a vengeance and wants revenge on the demon hunters that had sent him there from here. And this is that story of that revenge and this demon will stop at nothing. And uh, Drew's family is not off limits. Yeah, so first of all, like one of the things I thought about immediately, uh, not just when I was reading the book, but also when I was um, reading about the book was, uh, have you ever seen the movie Frailty? No, I haven't seen that. That was a really interesting movie that sort of flew under the radar, even though it had Matthew McConaughey in it. And it had another really interesting kind of perspective about, you know, um, whether or not the person who claims that they saw demons was actually seeing them or whether it was a mental illness. Um, And I think it's just a really interesting way to sort of approach a story about this, because I love supernatural fiction. I love horror. I grew up with Buffy and X-Files and all right. of that stuff. Um, but it is it is really interesting because when you are talking about a story about demonic possession, you know, you it does come into question, like, are we talking about somebody who's actually possessed or is this a mental illness and are we like, you know, going after the wrong thing? So I always find these stories really, really interesting. Um, Could you talk a little bit about uh, just sort of where the story came from? Um, Well, most of the stories that I write, I get some sort of inspiration for and gives me an idea or a setting and I, I pick it up and I put it together and I start from the beginning and I work my way to the end without a, um, without a plot. This is the first time that I wrote a story and it started in the middle. (laughs) And uh, I live in Central Florida. I go to the theme parks here all the time. Loads of fun. And the the myth of uh, one of the parks is that the Minnie Mouse character, the Mickey Mouse character rather, (coughs) is always a female because it's such a short character that it's easier to find someone who's the right height who's female. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, But while I was there, I started thinking about those costume characters and you don't really know who's inside. You have no idea. And well, of course, I'm a horror writer. So now I start thinking, well, what if the person inside is a bad person? You don't know. You don't know what they look like. You don't know what they're thinking. And what a great opportunity it would be for that person 
in this environment where everyone has their guard down and they're all just there for a good time and no one's worried about anything that all of a sudden someone could do some serious damage. And that spun into, okay, well, what kind of person would have to do that and who would they be looking for and why would it be in this location? And all of a sudden that spawned a story and this became a center scene within the book that I had to work from both ends to. How does everybody get to this particular place? And then after this, where does it all take them to? So this was the first time I ever wrote a book from the middle out. And it was definitely, um, but I, I'm very happy with the results. I really, I like that. And that's that's actually really interesting. You know, I, I um, as I mentioned before we started recording, um, I've spent a lot of time down in Florida, uh, and I feel like there are parts of it that have become more mainstream and yet weirder at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't exactly know how that's possible, but it totally is. Um, and you you do. It is a good point about the, the costume characters in the theme park. You know, um, I actually knew somebody a while ago who worked in the parks and... Um, I remember, I can't remember if it was a Pinocchio or what the character was, but um, the, the person who I was with mentioned that there are usually women in those smaller characters, you know, sure. because of that particular um, thing. And it, it, it is it is really interesting. Like when I was a kid and I went to Disney, you know, the costumes were not as good as they are now. Um, you know, now they blink and yes, it, it, they really put a lot of work into trying to make you think that you're really looking at Mickey Mouse. When I was a kid, I remember being like, that's not Mickey Mouse. I can clearly see a person behind the netting in their eyes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that that is a really interesting place to start thinking about horror, um, which actually makes me kind of wonder. Um, so like, you're from Long Island, right? That's right. That's why this was such a treat when I got this, this opportunity. And I thought, okay, well, this, oh, this is a Syosset Public Library. This is like hometown area. What, what a treat. I grew up um, in Smithtown and in Stony Brook. And the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library up there in the Stony Brook area, I can't tell you how many hours I spent there. So it's, it's exciting awesome. to a hometown library. Yeah. So first of all, like when I saw that, I, I got very excited, but you, you're in Florida right now. Um, and you know, Long Island, Long Island has its own lore and its own horror, but I feel yeah. like Florida horror has kind of become almost its own sub sub genre. Um, and I know I mentioned, I feel like it's gotten more mainstream and more strange at the same time. Um, so like, what is it about Florida you think that lends itself to horror? Well, personally, my writing has got a bunch of Florida inspirations in it. Uh, my book, The Playing Card Killer, which came out from Flame Tree Press before Demon Dagger, is about a serial killer stalking Tampa Bay. And uh, I use Tampa Bay there because of its variety of locations and how I could fit um, a bigger city into a plot maybe than where I'm at. Um, my story, Black Magic, is set in a dying sugar town in the Everglades in South Florida. And that's a great location because it's isolated and it's, it's hot. And part of that story is 
driven by a rising hurricane. And hurricanes are great horror vehicles because they're really scary. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I've had um, both of those. Um, I think there was a third one. But yeah, I've had a number of Florida inspirations that went into it. As an aside, I don't know if you're familiar with any um, creepy pastas like online horror stories. Yes. Yep. Have you read Abandoned by Disney? Because it is a doozy. No, <laughs> you should totally read it. It's so good. It's not. It's actually. I think it takes place in the Carolinas, but because it's got that theme park, um, mm -hmm. that theme park theme to it, I think you'd you'd appreciate it. Uh, but like what? So one of the other things I wanted to talk about was um, the role of this this 1901 experiment by Doctor McDougall about uh, determining the weight of the soul. I know there was um a movie out a while ago called 21 Brams that re referenced it. But could you talk yeah. a little bit about um, that experiment and sort of um, how it fits into the picture of the demon dagger? This, this was a really fascinating experiment. Like I said, it was in 1901. And Dr. McDougall decided that he wanted to scientifically prove that a soul existed. And his process was going to be that he was going to weigh a human being when they were alive and then weigh them at the moments after death. And if there was a difference, then something disappeared. And then he would assume that, according to him, that would be a soul. So uh, he had a, for 1901, he had an exceptionally complicated and rigorous method to do this. Although its ethics are a little dubious. <laughs> um, he had someone on death's door on a scale and his assistant would help him and they measured everything. And this was a huge scale like a bed so that all and they took account of liquids and air and all these kind of things. And they did six different Now you can imagine it was difficult to find someone who's ready to die and to volunteer for this cockamamie thing. that he was Yeah, doing. that's the other thing. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you don't mind, do you? No, like you're cool. Just, you know, like yeah, just, just lay here and die for science. So, uh, but he did he did six different takes on it. Three of them, he wasn't sure about the results, but the other three, he believed that he had seen a measurable difference in body weight that averaged 21 grams between the three different subjects from when they were alive and when they were dead. And everything was uh, pretty well accounted for. I mean, as you look back on his actual scientific paper that he studied, it, he's not a crackpot. He wasn't he was a medical doctor and he was very serious about getting these results. So in, in Demon Dagger, I took those results at face value and said, yes, there is a soul and it is inside someone and it can leave. Um, and in Demon Dagger, people will trade that soul to a demon who is possessing someone else because that's how the demon maintains their power. They live off the souls of others to keep that demonic part of them going. Um, but the problem is, is once you give up that soul in my story, the you lose that moral compass. That's that internal part of you. That's a conscience that says this is right. and This is wrong. And this is good. And this is bad. And as you lose that, you become a sociopath. And so, of course, the demon kind of forgets to warn people that this might be a side effect for whatever they're trading for. Uh, but, hey, you figure it out pretty quickly. <laughs> 
So that's that's how that worked into my story. And I, I had heard that and read about that experiment and thought it was really interesting. It's definitely interesting that no one ever followed up on trying that again in any way. And in my story, someone does. In my story, someone tries to, another doctor that I made up, a fictional one in Texas, does it and debunks the story and says, well, I did six people in a row and they all had the same results. They weighed the same dead or alive. But that person is doing his study on convicted killers who are being put to death. So within the story realm, that's the validation that yes, indeed, it, there are souls because these people didn't have any because they were sociopaths, convicted killers. You go back and forth um, between Drew's youth and current. Uh, did you start in the youth part or did you see him fully formed a, as an adult first? But I, I saw him uh, as the adult who was capable of being a demon hunter but had never really exercised it because in the environment that he was in, the opportunity didn't exist. He wasn't really excited about doing it to begin with. And so he wasn't going to go out and look for trouble if trouble didn't find him. So as an adult, he had all, been given all these skills a long time ago, but really had never put them into practice. And like I said, as I started in the middle and worked out, it was interesting to figure out that difference. What was that younger Drew like? And how did he learn to be a demon hunter and have those skills that he needed? So I had that also worked out as a good vehicle for explaining the world, that demon world about how it works and how demons exist and how you can fight them and what they do. Um, and you could see it, the, the reader gets to see it through the eyes of Drew as a young boy who doesn't know anything which as you walk into the book is kind of how the reader is, that they, they're not sure what kind of strange world I've created in here. And so um, I get to explain it to Drew and I get to explain it to them all at the same time. I mean, obviously the stakes couldn't be higher than having this demon possess a child and Absolutely. Drew's son for sure. Um, so Nicobar, the demon, where um, did you do like research on um I guess, um, what has been considered demonic possession and um, different, uh, I guess, um, books on, you know, what what the, I, I don't want to say moral compass of demons because there isn't one, but, you know, right. just sort of like the the patterns or um, what the, what the um, person, like the personality profile would be. Mm -hmm. The, um, I did a lot of research on reports of demonic possession for my previous book, uh, Lambs Among Wolves, which is an exorcism horror kind of story that's out with Crossroad Press right now. So that gave me some background. And a lot of the, the inspiration for the demon personality kind of things um, just came from thinking about people who were completely amoral. And there's plenty of examples to look at <laughs> um, to say, what is someone who's really driven by all those bad parts of us, about power, about lust, about revenge? If that was all that motivated you and you had no compunction about, you know, hurting anybody else, how would you act? And that ends up being Nicobar. And um, he's 
a little brutal, <laughs> but it's a hard book. So yeah, it is. <laughs> Are you going to write more stories about Drew? Uh, I I have gotten a lot of questions about what's Drew's next adventure, and I hadn't thought about this as part of a series. Um, I do have a prequel written for this that is set in the 1700s because part of this story uh, brings in the Spanish mission system that was set up in California. And within the, the myth of this story, those missions were not just set up, you know, to help um, settle California. They were specifically set up to fight demonic possession that was in California and working its way down to Mexico in the 1700s. So I do have a, a prequel written uh, set in that environment about a priest who has no idea that there's anything strange going on in this mission system. And he shows up and he and some of the Native American tribes are brought together to find out, yes, indeed, there are demonic possession problems happening here and we've got to work together to stop them. So once so again, we're backwards. Yeah. <laughs> What's some of your favorite horror um, TV, movie, book of recent times? Oh, um, television is hands down the Supernatural TV series, which ran for, I think, 16 seasons. And uh, there's going to be like a, a, a spinoff, too, right? I mean, oh, is there? That would possibly. Be, I, that I, would be great because it broke my heart when that got canceled. Um, yeah. Because that was that was a really good series, and one of the best things about it was it was cons character consistent. That um, you know there weren't wild tangents of people acting strangely. People were very consistent in their actions and their motivations. Um, uh, reading wise, I tend to read the uh, the books that are put out by the authors from the same publishers that I'm published with. And that kind of keeps me on my toes. You know, if that's the other person published here and they're usually really good, then I finish that and go, man, I got to up my game because they, <laughs> that was a really good book. Um, if someone's interested in another uh, uh, demonic possession oriented book, The Awakening was just published by J.G. Faherty uh, out of Flame Tree. And it's, it's excellent. It's more uh, religious oriented than Demon Dagger but it's really good book. Um, and anybody, I love uh, Catherine Cavendish's work. As far as I'm concerned, she's the queen of Gothic horror. You can read, if you love Gothic horror, you can read anything she wrote and you'll be thrilled. I was going to say Flame Tree Press has been uh, coming out with some really good stuff lately. I, I love, um, you know, that there's really these horror imprints that are starting to really thrive. It is. It's a great resurgence of the genre, you know, and you saw it, um, you know, Stephen King lit it on fire first way back when. And then it had another big heyday about the 90s. And it seems like it's really making a comeback now. Um, you know, I've been visiting the Barnes and Nobles in the area around this release, and they've got a fantastic horror section. And just a year or two ago, horror was tucked into the fiction section. And if you wanted some, you had to kind of hunt around and try to find it. So it's a real treat that all those books are in one place. And if that's what you want to read, you can head right there and grab just what you're looking for. 
Yeah, I think uh, during the pandemic, especially for me, um, I read more horror than I have in like back to back in a while. And I don't know, I guess there's something about reading something that's horrifying and more distorted than the already horrifying and more di and distorted world that we're watching that yes. almost is like soothing. It, you know, it's funny because in uh, several years ago, I wrote a, a novel about a pandemic called Q Island. It's set on Long Island, New York. It's about a virus that breaks out, turns people into crazed killers. The government gets quarantines the island and it's the story of the folks on there. Um, that book continues to be, when I do conventions, a top seller every single time. Even at the height of the pandemic, people wanted to read a story about a pandemic. And I think it's exactly what you said, that you know, if I can see something worse than what's going on around me, it'll make what's going on around me seem uh, bearable. And uh, that, that's a good example of it right there. So I also just checked, uh, yeah, the Winchesters is coming out in the fall and it is the a prequel to Supernatural. So All right. there you go. So, uh, you know, um, yeah, uh, you know, for me, like I I'm thinking about some of the horror television that I have loved um, for me. I mean, I liked it was only one season and it got kind of inconsistent towards the end. But um, American Gothic by okay. um it, that was really really good and creepy um i liked that um what is it evil is on now and that's a really interesting one um it's, yeah you can see i'm surprised um i got i have net i'm a netflix subscriber and the amount of horror that netflix is willing to do as their own personal productions, not just that, you know, a movie that they brought in off like that um, is pretty amazing. I mean, they've got several horror series going on and some other ones they've imported like uh, Dark was a good series that came through there that was uh, imported from overseas. Um, I Trained to Busan was a movie that I saw their great horror film out of Korea that was on Netflix. Um, Squid Games is 100% horror. Oh, 100%. Uh, very much so. I'm not really sure how there's going to be a second season. I kind of feel like, yeah, you know, sometimes I'm like, do you, do we really need to do this? But I guess, exactly. we'll, I guess we'll see. You know, one thing, um, one thing that I was kind of surprised and I consider it horror adjacent that they did a second season of was um, Russian Doll which oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, that was very good. But I was like, you know, do they really need a second season of this? And then I watched the second season and it was really good. It was very different. But um, I, I think a less less horror, but also a little bit more sci fi, but also really good. But one thing that's really funny to me, because, you know, you, um, you talk about the Stephen King age horror and you talk about like, um, you know, like this resurgence in the 90s and, you know, now. What's very funny to me is obviously one of the most mainstream horrors for many ages right now is Stranger Things, which was originally supposed to be Montauk set on Long yeah. Island, uh, closer to your neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. um, but it's funny to me, you know, you talk about like going into a bookstore and now like horror being everywhere, even like Dungeons and Dragons, which was like just this huge 
you know, like you were a pariah either because oh, there was yeah. rumors about what would happen to you if, you know, talk about like demon possessions, if you're going to play Dungeons and Dragons, or, you know, you were just the dorky kid. Now it's like you go into Barnes and Noble and it's like Dungeons and Dragons everywhere. Everybody right. play. And it's just, it's very funny. I'm like, is this, is this real life? <laughs> it's definitely, it gone com so mainstream that I'm sure the type of person that was a geeky escape person now wouldn't do it because everyone does it. So I got to find something else. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, my husband uh, and I played, um, but my husband was, you know, one of the original players. And uh, now we, now we run games for our seven-year-olds. Excellent. Great. So, you know, yeah. That's great though. I mean, it's creative and it, it gets your imagination going as opposed to just watching something. And then, yeah. you know, it's exciting and there's different turns of event. You never know what's going to happen. And um, it's, oh, it's, there's a whole lot worse things you could be doing. <laughs> so as a horror writer, um, where do you go next? I know you have a prequel. Um, are, is that the next thing that you're working on? Or are you working on something a little different? Well, right now I've got a um, two series that are running from uh, Severed Press, another publisher. And these are more B-movie giant monster adventure kind of stories. Uh, one of them just released the first one of a new series about Rick and Rose Sinclair. It's set in 1938, and they are antique dealers living in Savannah, and they come across an old journal where uh, a guy has said he once found the lost temple of the Queen of Sheba, which was her treasury filled with diamonds. He found it, but he could never quite get to it, and he had to turn around, and they decide hey, here's all the instructions. Here's everything we need to do. Let's go do it. So they set out with a friend of theirs to go make that happen. They find out there are other people interested and on the crowd to do it at the same time. And when they get there, they're looking for treasure. But what they find are monsters that are def still defending it and some serious supernatural issues going on if they get inside. So um, I've got that book just came out. I'm working on a second one in that series, as well as uh, a new book is coming out this year in the Grant Coleman series, which are uh, a series about a paleontologist who keeps getting roped into expeditions that end up finding giant monsters. And so there's there's that sounds like fun. a lot coming out of the pipeline. I like that. That sounds that sounds awesome. You know, it's funny, like just thinking about even like the first series that, that you were just talking about. And then that, you know, also kind of brings me back to things that um, I, I would call horror ad adjacent in the 80s. And I'm convinced that children's entertainment in the late 70s, 80s through early mm -hmm. 90s were all kind of horror. I mean, like, but like, what is it like Goonies, you know, you like, which yeah. that you talk about you know someone going on an adventure and some wild things uh I, I don't know i don't know why goonies for adults was running through my mind when you were talking about some of that stuff but you, i love it i can't tell you how many people who are horror fans point to the goonies as their their seminal moment that started them down that road and over and over um and it, it's revered by a whole generation of people that said hey that got them started um, but i mean in a way goonies is a lot like um it but mm -hmm. you know 
not. <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, there's a lot of things that are in it that wouldn't have made it to Goonies. But uh, you do have this whole like losers club, um, mm -hmm. obviously in a different way. Uh, and I think you know that obviously informed Stranger Things. Yeah. Uh, but for so for me though, um, absolutely never ending story. That movie was horrifying visually and emotionally. Yeah, that's another one that has a tremendous following where at this point there's people showing that film to their kids saying this is what this was great. You got to watch this. So, yeah, I, I don't think I'm there yet. I, I don't know how many times I could actually have my kids sleeping in my bed. So uh, maybe, when they're, <laughs> maybe when they're a little bit older, but man. So, so much so much good stuff that really did i think grow a lot of us horror fans mm -hmm. um Absolutely. back then anyway uh well thank you so much uh this was wonderful thank you for chatting with us um oh, please great. come back and chat about something else um i'll let you it, know one of the yes. the next grant coleman or the next rick and rose sinclair book come out we'll sit and chat about that all right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks to Flame Tree Press once again um, for uh, publishing some great horror. And um, oh, thank you, Russell. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Great talking and to you. You too. And we are going to close this chapter of Turn the Page. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.